Welcome once again to Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's guest is a repeat guest. We had him on just a few months ago. I'm talking about Ryan S. Walters. Talking about his new book, The Jazz Age President Defending Warren G. Harding. I will link to that, of course, in the show notes. Um, and it's had a great conversation with Ryan. With Ryan. With Ryan. It's hard to say my own name sometimes. Uh, anyways, and so... Hope you enjoy it, and check out the book. Give it a read, and let me know your thoughts, because um, Harding, as a, as a president, you you probably don't know a lot about it. You might, but you probably don't. Um, if you're like me, you didn't. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. You can reach me uh, by checking out the show notes, and I'll tell you where to find me there. Um, and with that, let's get to Ryan Walters. Well, Ryan, it has been a few months since we spoke. You mentioned you're having a new book. It's coming out. It's out now. The Jazz Age President um, Defending Warren G. Harding. I'll be honest with you, when I got this book, I thought, who is Warren G. Harding? Is he a real president of the United States? <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's good to be back. And you're just, that's look, that's just typical. That's, <laughs> that's, I've heard that so many times. People that read it had no idea who he was. They might have heard about him, you know, briefly, in a history class, or they'll say something like, yeah, I think I heard of him once. Maybe wouldn't he a bad president? That's, you know, it's something like that. But yeah, that's, that's pretty typical. He's kind of forgotten. Yeah. I was where he was. I was kidding. A little tongue in cheek there, but he is not really a popular president. So let, let's maybe start there. What, in your opinion, you're a historian here, what makes a president popular versus Unpopular. Obviously, Washington probably has an advantage because of being the numero uno. But but Adams, relatively speaking, is is not as popular. So, what makes these guys popular or not popular? Yeah, I'm going to tell you what it comes down to. It comes down to your worldview, your political philosophy, um, how you view things. I mean, that's just the way it is. The historical profession, as you probably know, is dominated by liberal Democrats, left wingers, progressives socialists. I mean, they're communists and stuff. And so those people uh, are the ones that's doing the rankings for the most part. Uh, C-SPAN's rankings, anybody's rankings are going to be dominated by liberal progressives. So they're not going to like people like Warren Harding. So when you look at the list, the top 10 or 12 or 15, you're going to see a lot of liberal presidents and presidents that were activists that, that, you know, wanted to transform the country and do all of these things and spend money and that kind of thing. Those are the ones that dominate that top 10 or 12 or 15 presidents. And then usually your more conservative presidents are way down the list. So it really comes down to your viewpoint. Everybody has viewpoints. Everybody has bias and all those kind of things. So, um, so that's why Harding has finished last in more, in more uh, polls than any other president. Going back to Arthur Schlesinger's original 1948 poll. Now he's come up a few notches in recent years. Um, but he's still in the bottom 10. He's still considered a failed president. And I just don't think he's a failed president. Yeah, it's, it's a good reminder that, you know, um, conservatives would view presidents one way and Democrats would view them another way. And libertarians like myself would probably view them a different way. Everyone's going to view them um, yeah. um, differently. And these lists are not, um, you know, done by it's not like the old BCS college football rankings where it's computer algorithms spitting them out. It's yeah. and even that yeah. is influenced by humans. And so. Um, that is something to keep in mind here. So let me just let me ask this though. Some people might say, well, okay, all that being said, that's good. But you know, listen, 
it's also easy to go back and say, well, everyone's dismissing this person. Therefore, I'm going to write a book um, to support him because that's kind of a popular thing to do, kind of the, the revisionist history, if you will. What would you say to someone who maybe say, well, listen, Cardi, all that aside, he still was irrelevant. Well, the, the, the problem is most people don't know anything about him. Mm. They think they do. And, they, they, and, and, and most people that say all these things, they're just regurgitating what's been said for 100 years. Harding died in 1923 while he was in office. So we've had about a century of this kind of stuff that's, that's come out. Most of it's political attacks that were thrown against him at the time when he was running for president and in the years he was president. And they just run with them. Um, if you pin them down and say, and I've done this, it's kind of fun to do it on social media when they start all that. You say, okay, tell me about since you're such an expert, tell me about Harding's foreign policy. And then it's, uh, uh, they don't know. They don't know anything about it. They just know what they've heard. And I, I think a lot of history professors, there are people in universities that are don't know anything about it. And that's the case with a lot, a lot of presidents. They just, they don't really know. Um, but I started doing the research and, and I knew a little bit about Harding and, and I just knew I didn't, I, I don't, I didn't think he was a failed president. And I was looking at the polls and it was an interesting poll uh, that I think speaks to this, it was in the 1980s, where they broke up um, the respondents in the poll between liberal and conservative, and both groups picked Harding as the worst president. So I think that's owing to people just don't know, whether it's ignorance or, or just or some sort of bias. But the point of the book is, here's some facts. Here's some facts based on primary sources, Harding's letters, Harding's speeches, memoirs, from people that served with him um, and knew him and reported on him um, who were in the White House when he was in the White House. So you start looking at the real records, you get a different story than what we've been told. Yeah, and, and looking, so let's kind of maybe set the tone here. So as you mentioned, he died in 23. He took office in 21, right? Um, yeah. And so he's preceded by Wilson, succeeded by Coolidge. Those are names that most people know. They might not know a lot about them, but their yep. names people know. Um, um, and so you're kind of, maybe set, just let's take Harding out of it for a second. What is going on in the world as he comes into office? And then obviously we know the Great Depression's you know, a few years away, but as he leaves office, because thinking back to middle school or high school history, it's the roaring 20s is kind of what you know it as. So maybe dissect right. that a little bit. And that's one thing I wanted to do with the book. I started looking at it and I thought, you know, the problem with Harding is he's not put in his proper context. Because there were some historians, because I started looking at what historians had said about him. And I started writing all these down, and that's in the first few chapters of the book, the ugly things that they said. And, and a couple of historians uh, said, well, one of the reasons why he's so bad, because he really didn't accomplish anything when he was president. Uh, one said that there was nothing really going on in the country. And I thought, are you blind? Have you read it? Do you know anything about that? You know, at the end of World War One, coming out of that November 1918, you got a flu pandemic, the, the so-called Spanish flu, they like to call it, that gray influenza that, that hit the country and hit the world. Um, the fight over the League of Nations and the Senate, and that was pretty nasty. Woodrow Wilson had a stroke right in the middle of it. He was incapacitated for nine months. The country really didn't have a president for nine months. If you, unless you count his wife, Edith, she was kind of running the show. Um, You've got an awful year, 1919. You've got labor strikes. You've got terroristic bombings. Most people don't know we were hit, we were hit by a wave of terrorism in 1919. Bolshevik groups were setting bombs off, anarchist groups, and they blew up the attorney general's house and um, had another pro, a, 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 a number of other prominent targets. Uh, 
the red summer of 1919, the racial violence was terrible. Um, dozens of black Americans lynched. Uh, the worst racial violence was in Chicago. They had several days of racial rioting in Chicago. And then you hit January 1920 and the economy uh, goes into a depression. It's known as the Forgotten Depression. And so when Harding comes in in 1920, and that depression was pretty bad. I mean, unemployment went from 4% to 12%, and corporate profits fell 90%. Corporate uh, industrial production fell by a third. Inflation went up. All of the things that you see in a depression. And, you know, it's just like one thing after another that's hitting the country. Harding comes in and runs for president in 1920 on, under the banner of we need a return to normalcy. And that's what a lot of people wanted to hear. And that's why he got more than 60 percent of the vote. He was the first president to get more than 60 percent of the popular vote. Yeah, there is a lot going on. And that's, you know, it's one of those things to where it's, you know, of course, we're recording this on um, March 3rd. So I don't know what's going to happen with the Russia-Ukraine situation. So yeah. comments are relative to what's going on today. But, you know, we're in the 24-hour news cycle, which it feels like um, coming out of the Trump presidency. And even before that, with Obama and Bush, there was always something going on. And you kind of tend to look back. You know, it's like, well, you know, you have this assassination, you have that, but, you know, they didn't have a whole lot going on. And that's probably just because in America, we're not really taught history, you know? And so we kind of look at these periods as not a lot going on. Um, but our country has always had, uh, relatively speaking, something going on and probably a lot more than most people know. And so you, you start talking about all these things like, oh, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's there and that's there. And then, you know, you, you try to place all together. It's probably hard for the average citizen who just haven't read a lot of this time, this, this history, this period of history, because also it seems that we're taught mainly war history in the U S right. So a lot of what we're taught is surrounded around the, you know, Declaration of independence and the independent fight for freedom there. And then you got the civil war and world war two kind of skip over world war one war in Vietnam. But <laughs> that seems to be what most people, at least I was taught in high school. And that probably hurts the case for defending a guy like Harding because most people don't know that in that period of history. Yeah. Um, I'll clean the language up uh, for the broadcast, but as you know, Henry Ford has claimed to have said history is just one darn thing after another. And that's what we <laughs> learned in school. Right. I try not to do that kind of stuff when I teach in my classes at Collin College in Texas. Um, I like to put things in context and, and teach students why we are learning these things. And I'm, I'm, I'm about to get into World War One. I. I do cover it a lot in my class. And, you know, why do you, why do you, why do you, why don't we learn about Woodrow Wilson? I mean, think about what Woodrow Wilson had done. The country had really been in about 20 years of progressivism before Harding's election, and people were just fed up with it. Go back to Roosevelt and Taft and then Woodrow Wilson. Look at 1913. Look at all the things that happened in 1913. You know, income tax, Federal Reserve. And tell me, that doesn't affect your life every single day. Uh, the 17th Amendment, uh, direct election of senators. Uh, a bunch of things that happened under Wilson. And of course, you get World War One, which is really a culmination of progressivism. A lot of historians like to teach that progressivism ended with World War One. No, it didn't. World War One was a progressive war. I mean, the war to end all wars, the, the make the world safer democracy, those are progressive ideals. We just simply moved our progressivism to France. That's all we did. Um, we were still the Treaty of Versailles, all of these things to remake the world. And so people were really fed up with that. So you really have to be careful when you're teaching history or learning history that you're not, you know, it's not, you're not categorizing it and boxing it like, you know, one thing after another. You have to understand presidents are dealing with a lot of stuff going on at the same time. We learn it 
you know, one by one, but, you know, there's a lot of things that they're dealing with. I mean, Harding's working on the economy and domestic tranquility and foreign policy and all these things at the same time. He's not doing one thing and then doing another thing than doing something else. Okay. So how does a guy like Harding who, you know, kind of pushing back on the modern narrative, how does he rise to stardom, if you will, and, and to get the highest office in the land if, you know, if he was so unpopular, at least looking back in history, was he, was he, you said he won 60% of the vote. He seems yeah. to be pretty popular. It was messaging. Was he charismatic? What, what about him that, that drew Americans in? Well, yeah, he was very popular. He was always popular in the Republican party. Another myth that I tackle, and I tackle eight major myths in the book. One of them was that he was a do nothing Senator when he was in the U S Senate and didn't do anything. He's a backbencher, just kind of um, sitting there doing nothing and, and waited for his opportunity to become president. That's not true. Of course, the first four years he was in office, he was in there for one six-year term before he was nominated for president and won the presidency. The first four years, the Democrats controlled the Senate. And if you're in the minority, there's not a whole lot you can do. Um, be an obstructionist, that's basically all you can do. But Republicans took control in 1918, and Harding was on the Foreign Relations Committee. That's a very important committee um, headed by Henry Cabot Lodge. He was instrumental in helping stop the League of Nations. As a matter of fact, when the Senate began debate on that and the senators began giving speeches for or against the League of Nations, uh, Harding was given the lead speech, the first speech on the League of Nations by Henry Cabot Lodge. I mean, you don't let a fool give the first speech on these things. And so he he went to the White House with him and met with Wilson and tried to try to get some kind something worked out on the League of Nations and he was instrumental in helping stop it. And look, he was the chairman of the Republican National uh, Convention in 1916. He was elected the chair of the convention, gave a great speech. People praised his speech. He was very popular in the party, um, and that's why people he wasn't a total unknown. I mean, he's probably considered a dark horse candidate for president. And, the, and what that means in political parlance is that Harding's name wasn't mentioned when the process started. Nobody was really thinking about Warren Harding. There were some other leading candidates, General Leonard Wood, people like that, some governors. But Harding's name emerged again because you had a deadlock convention. And in those days, you didn't have, you had a few primaries, but they didn't do anything. You had a deadlock convention and they had a meeting to try to break the log jam because these things could go on for days and days and get nasty party fights and things like that. Can, the, the nominating process is so different today than it was then. And, and that's why you get these myths about a smoke filled room and all that kind of garbage. Uh, people, most people don't even understand how it was done in those days. It's totally different today. Yeah. And I think I cut out there for half a second. I was, I was saying, um, you you were talking about um, the process back then. So could you maybe unpack that and maybe you, right. you cut out there, you did unpack it. But if you couldn't, if you didn't, just re, re, redo it there. What was the process back then and how is it different and why did it change? We didn't have primaries until the early 20th century. I think the first one was in 1903. And when Harding came along, there were a handful that you could run in. And that was just a way to show your strength, show the fact that you could raise some money, you could get some support. And he didn't do very well in the primaries. But in those days, you you – you want it at the convention. Today, the convention is really just a, it's a expensive media show. That's all it is. There's, there's nothing contentious about it. But in those days, it was, it was everything. Even before the primaries, uh, there, you know, everything was done at the convention. You, you ran at the convention. You got managers that managed your campaign and they tried to persuade delegates to nominate you. And um, I, I was reading an article the other day, an anti-Harding article the other day, and somebody said, well, Harding was not even the top choice of the party. He was only about the third or fourth choice. 
almost every nominee through our history was not the first, Lincoln was not the first choice of the Republican Party in 1860. It's just the way it worked. And a lot of people came from the bottom of the pack all the way to the top because they're having to cut deals and work out things to keep from having such divisive and, and deadlocked conventions. So there's a lot of wheeling and dealing that went on. And I, and I cover some of that in the book. Um, it's just the way things were done then. The reason for the primaries is to stop having that type of system, let the people choose their own nominees in the primaries. And that's the way we do it now for every office, or virtually every office. Yeah. Okay. And then you mentioned, we've talked about Coolidge a little bit. What, what's Coolidge's stance? What would he say to us about Harding? Harding and Coolidge, interestingly, at the convention, again, that go back to that smoke-filled room and this group of senators selected Harding because he was pliable and we can bend him to our will and he'll, he'll do what we want, which is totally untrue. I explode that myth in the book. But to show you that the, that the, that the party bigwigs did not control the convention, when Harding won the nomination, and Harding was, didn't pick a running mate, he said, well, whoever the convention wants will be fine with me. In other words, let the party do it. Uh, the party bigwigs wanted a, a liberal senator to kind of balance it out because so, Harding was so conservative, America first guy. Hey, let's get a liberal guy to kind of have a, a, a ticket balancing act here. And the convention wouldn't have it at all. Because remember, Coolidge was very popular. He was the governor of Massachusetts, and he stood up to a police strike in 1919 when the Boston Police Department went out on strike. Now, imagine that. And, of course, there's a lot of rioting and violence in Boston. Right. He took a strong stand and said, you know, there's no right to strike against the public safety by anyone at any time, anywhere. In other words, he took a, and it made him a national hero. And so when the time came to nominate a vice president, the entire convention just erupted in shouts of Coolidge, Coolidge, Coolidge. And they pushed Coolidge into the vice presidential nomination. So this idea that these party bigwigs and senators and all control the party, it's completely untrue. And these two guys mirrored each other perfectly, Harding and Coolidge, in their political philosophies. They were America first conservatives, identical in what they wanted to do for the country. Now, personality wise, they're, they're night and day. You know, Harding's this extroverted guy and likes people and um, likes to go out and campaign. And, you know, he, had, he liked to have a drink or two, had a couple of extramarital affairs earlier in life. And Coolidge wouldn't have been caught dead with a drink in his hand, I mean, he, or with another woman or even thinking about anything. You know, Coolidge was a very introverted guy, didn't like to talk, but their their politics was a perfect match. Yeah, and, and the, one of the reasons I was asking that question is because when you go back, um, I remember reading a biography on Adams, and it was talking about how Adams and Jefferson, and how Jefferson was kind of going after Adams, even though he was the vice president. And so there's kind of this part in American history where you got to be careful just because the, the vice president is the vice president. It, it doesn't mean that he liked or she liked the president. And so uh, now we kind of see that today. They're kind of a ticket paired up. But I don't know when that demarcation line happened. But I'm just kind of aware of that as a, as a point that, oh, some, sometimes these people, they were just forced together. They, they didn't like each other. Right. In, in early, early years, back in the, in the Adams-Jefferson years, you got to remember that the original system was 
whoever finished first in the presidential election would be the president. Whoever finished second would be the vice president. So if we had that system today, Biden would be the president and Trump would be the vice president. How well do you think that'd work out? Could you imagine? Uh, could you imagine that? <laughs> Trump would be holding pressers yeah. every day. <laughs> right. And, you know, in Trump's first term, Hillary would have been his vice president. Oh, so that's, that's man. And so you had to be careful with that. And then, of course, they changed it eventually. And, of course, the vice presidential office was not a good office to have for most of our uh, history. Nobody wanted that thing uh, because originally it was considered a legislative office. We think about it as being the executive office, but that's not the way the founders crafted it because the vice president's only constitutional role is president of the Senate. The, Senate. Yeah. the vice president presided over the Senate every day. And then when the, in the congressional sessions was maybe three or four months at the most, they'd go, they'd go home. There was no, there was no residence in Washington. They would go home and, you know, back to their farm or whatever they were doing. Most people hated the job and it was a way to kill a career. And a lot of times you'd see the vice presidential nominee would be a former governor or a former Senator, somebody that was already retired that they would drag out to do it. Sometimes it worked out well if it wasn't a death or something. Harding began the process of, of transforming that office into its modern role because he brought Coolidge really into the administration. Vice presidents were shunned. They weren't in cabinet meetings before that. But Harding actually invited him to his house in Marion, Ohio, um, after the election. And they had a you know conference. I think it was around Christmas time, 1920. Um, and they, they, they spent a couple of days together. And, and Coolidge was uh, helping him who we're going to get for the cabinet and, and other offices and things like that. And of course, during the administration, Coolidge was part of the cabinet meetings and spoke in cabinet meetings. He was really the first vice president to do that because um, most people didn't want it. And there's a lot of funny things I put in the book about uh, what vice presidents have said about the office. But today it's an office people covet. They want the, they want that because you get a house and a plane and your own limousine and you all these perks and things. But but in, in you know a century ago, you had to you had to force people to do it. Coolidge was happy to do it. Yeah, it's um. It's it's weird just to think about about that the, the vice president being a position that people don't want because now it's a it's a stepping stone but that goes to part of this thing which is you know trying to view these people in the time that they're in and, and how they're thinking about things and and how they're they're moving through history which is um you know I can't imagine if you want to be president right now that you wouldn't consider running as a vice president candidate at some point um, that's you know. I mean, look, it was, a, it, was, it was a dead end office. Remember what they did to uh, or tried to do to Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt was elected governor of uh, New York right after the uh, Spanish-American War, you know, hero of San Juan Hill, Rough Riders and all of that. And he was a reformer. He was just giving the big bosses in New York fits of his reform agenda. So in 1900, when McKinley was running for a second term, they, they, they nominated him for vice president. They put him in that office. Because that was the surest way, they said, to kill his career. It's just to, he'll wreck him, you know, we'll wreck him in this office. It's kind of like the funny story that Thomas Marshall told, I, I tell in the book. He was Woodrow Wilson's vice president for two terms. And he said, there once were two men, one went away to sea, the other one became vice president. Neither one of them were ever heard from again. That's what they <laughs> tried to do to Theodore Roosevelt. Of course, it didn't work out that way because six months in, McKinley was assassinated and it blew up in their face. But it was seen as a, it was a, a career killing job in those days. Not now. I mean, now people fight over it. They try to get the job. Um, Cause it is, of course, that's the, that has to do with TV and, and, and that kind of thing as well. 
Oh yeah, I was at a uh, a meeting. I won't say where, and it was some candidates that were. Um, this candidate was running for office, and this other candidate was there to endorse him. And the candidate running made mention that he was standing behind this other candidate every time this other candidate was on TV during the pandemic because he wanted to show support. And I was like, no, no, no. You were there every time so that you could be on TV just like the rest of y'all are. But it was just funny because it was like, like politicians acting like they're trying. It's like, okay, okay. Yeah, so TV and the fame and the book deals and all that has definitely changed changed sure. the landscape of all, all of that so much. But oh, yeah. they, you know, they sent him around the world on his junk. Look at, that's what JFK did to Lyndon Johnson. They sent him around the world, all these different countries, and they'd go here and there. And, and they had, again, they had their plane and, and nice house and that kind of thing. And they got a good salary. So it's, a, it's, it's, a st- it's definitely a stepping stone now. It's interesting because it used to be the stepping stone was being Secretary of State. But we don't think of that as, as being a stepping stone now. But uh, your cabinet officials are probably more qualified than most vice presidents in, in most cases. Yeah, yeah, probably so. Okay, so you mentioned earlier that you know we have the Treaty of Versailles, World War One's ended, and he's kind of considered this this do nothing president. It's funny. I remember when um, when uh, when Trump was running, I I was telling someone, I said, I don't think if he wins, he's going to do anything. And they said, Oh my gosh, that'd be the greatest thing ever. <laughs> if he didn't do anything, we'd love him for that. And I was like, Oh, okay. And so, <laughs> I guess for some people, that might be a positive. So, okay, so he's he's argued is not doing anything. Go through maybe some of his accomplishments or. His accomplishments, accomplishments might might be from some people's perspective is that he was restrictive in nature, not necessarily uh, a progressive doing things. So kind of balance that out for us. Right. It, it, today, it's, you have to have vision. They call it the vision thing, as George H.W. Bush called it. You have to have vision. You got to come out with this progressive vision that you're an activist, that you're going to do all these things, kind of, you know, Roosevelt's New Deal. They all had the, you know, the square deal, the new deal, the new freedom and the new nationalism, and all these new things that they want to do. And Harding was not like that. Harding was a return to normalcy. So he doesn't get credit. But the fact is he had an agenda. It's just well, not what hey, these progressive. Oh, okay. Yeah. Real quick. So when you say return to normalcy, maybe for the listener unpack how far, because you mentioned ago, you mentioned it's 20 years, basically of progressivism. So right. what does that mean when he's saying that, like what period is he invoking? Well, he's, he's wanting to go back to, and I think a lot of what it is, was not only the progressivism, but just the, 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 the terrible economy, the violence, you know, the, our domestic tranquility was upset, you know, we had the flu pandemic, wars, all of that stuff. He wanted to go back to that bygone era of a simpler time when, because he said in his inaugural address in terms of war is that we need to disentangle ourselves from the old world. We need to stay out of Europe squabbles. You know, we got in this, but we don't need to do this ever again. This is a one-time deal. We need to go back to, we're spending way more money than we were spending. Taxes were through the roof. All of these things he wanted to get rid of and kind of go back as much as he could to a simpler, more bygone era. And not only that, Wilson was a very much uh, what we would call an imperial president. Wilson become pretty much a dictator, just like Roosevelt was, Theodore Roosevelt. And of course, FDR, his cousin later on, um, dictating things. And Harding did not view the office that way at all. Um, he viewed the office more like the founding fathers viewed the office. The president was, a, was an administrator over the executive branch. He was not a king. He was not a dictator. He was not a monarch that dictate things. Harding, Harding kind of let Congress do a lot of things on their own, which is the way it should be done. 
Congress is listed first in the Constitution for a reason. The Congress is the strongest of the three branches. And Harding viewed his role as president more like the founders did. And the founders would have loved him in that sense. They might have loved everything he did and some of the scandals, but the way he approached the office, the founders would have been very much in favor of. So when he comes in for return to normalcy, he's not saying, hey, the economy's in bad shape. We need to have a bunch of stimulus programs. We got to spend a whole bunch of money. His, his approach was the opposite. His approach was laissez-faire conservatism, hands off back off the economy. But it's not that he did nothing. He cut taxes significantly. Spending was cut by 50%. I mean, imagine today a president coming in and cutting the budget, federal budget by 50% across the board today. Uh, restricted regulations and things like that. So it was very much conservatism in an economic sense. 50, five, zero. Yeah, 50%. Five, five, zero. <laughs> Think about this. The budget under Wilson before World War I was a little over $700 million with an M a year. It was less than a billion dollars, $714 million in 1916. Now, World War I, we get into that, we're spending all kinds of money. We spent $50 billion on that war. Mm -hmm. Our budget was $19 billion with a B um, when the year the war ended. Now, wow. of course, the army comes home, they're mustering them out of service, so that's going to bring it down. But it was still $6 billion a year when Harding came in. He cut it $3 billion. So it was cut pretty significantly. Uh, that's money that's back into the economy. Taxes, the top tax rate had gone to over 70% on the top rate. And everybody was paying the income tax. We just got the income tax in 1913. The most anybody could pay if you were a Rockefeller or a Carnegie or somebody was 7%. Now you're paying 10 times that much or more in taxes. And they eventually throughout the 1920s cut that down to 25%. So there was significant income tax reductions, significant spending cuts and significant reductions in other uh, regulations and bureaucracy. So what you get with that is the roaring 20s, which is the greatest period of economic growth in our history. I mean, think about the decade. We, we get happy today with three or 4% growth. The 1920s, they averaged 7% growth in the economy every single year. We ran a surplus every single year. They paid a third of the national debt, cut income taxes four times. Now that's a pretty impressive record for somebody that's supposed to be dumb and anti-intellectual and a do-nothing. Okay, so yeah, you, you kind of teed up where I want to go, which is um, I've heard, and, and my listeners know that I'm a very much a free market capitalist, so I'm obviously have a problem with this, and I know you will as well, I think. I've heard that the reason for the Great Depression is all this laissez-faire capitalism. We, we just, man, we let the titans roll, baby. They were taking advantage, and they screwed this whole thing up, and thank God we had FDR because he saved us all. I suspect, like me, I'm not a historian, but you are. You will take some issue with that, that uh, phrasing of what happened back then. Well, I, I, that's one of the myths um, that I look at in the book was that you read any of these historians are going to say that Harding and Coolidge is are both responsible for and Hoover uh, the Great Depression or the crash in 1929, and some of them even go so far as to give them credit for the boom of the 1920s, so that they can blame them for the bust. One historian actually said that. Well, if you got if you're going to give them credit for the boom, you got to give them credit for the bust. Um, no, I don't. Because Harding and Coolidge, and here's the mistake people make. You hear about the 1920s. That was an era of Republican presidents, Harding, Coolidge, Hoover, all Republicans. 
Hoover was nothing like Harding and Coolidge in his philosophy. He was more like FDR. No, no, I didn't mean to cut you off. That's what I was going to say. Is like my understanding is is that the myth is about Hoover. That Hoover right. was a continuation, and he was really not. And he started changing everything. Right. And 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 a lot of people talk about that. Yes. So that that that's what I was. Yeah. That's yeah. What I was, yeah he, Hoover was a progressive um, in his thought process. Harding and Coolidge came in in the midst of an economic depression, instituted conservative economic policies that work. We get a boom when the crash happens in 1929, and most of that can be laid at the feet of the Federal Reserve. When you see the Federal Reserve's policies and what they were trying to do with the money, they began pulling it out of circulation because they, they, they feared inflation. And so they began to pull it out of circulation, not a little bit at a time, but um, as one economist said, they really stomped on the brake pretty hard. In a four-year period, they pulled a third of the money out of circulation, which is a lot for the economy. And the, and the Fed has admitted that, I think that they did too much. And that's a lot for the economy to take. You throw in Hoover reversing Harding and Coolidge's policies, started spending money, uh, raised taxes from 25% to 63% in one fell sweep. Uh, the Smoot-Harley tariff, all of these things that he did was closer to what FDR would do when he came in. And so you take a, 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 a correction in the market um, and you make it worse with these types of policies. And then, of course, FDR comes in and prolongs them because he took Hoover's ideas and put them on steroids with the New, new Deal. So these, this is polar opposite in your terms of economic policy. So how in the world can you blame Harding and Coolidge for that? If, Hoolidge, if, if, if Coolidge would have been there, you'd have had a different approach in 1929, and we might have weathered the storm a lot better. Uh, but a lot of people, I've heard this too, this is kind of, it always cracks me up when somebody says, well, yeah, there was a little recession in 1920, but it was nothing like 1929. 1929 was so much worse than what happened in 1920. I said, well, that's like uh, you and I living side by side um, in a neighborhood and both of our houses catch on fire. And I run out there with a water hose and put the house out. You throw gasoline on yours and it burns your house down. And then you come to me and say, well, the fire at my house was so much worse than yours. Yeah, because you look at what you did to it. Um, that, I mean, you, 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 were, you were feeling it. I mean, you look at what FDR did. Not only Hoover, but FDR. You got a third of the money out of circulation. FDR tripled taxes and doubled spending. All of these restrictions and new taxes like Social Security that hit, hit employee and employer. And you got the National Industrial Recovery Act and AAA and all of these regulations that hit the economy. He filed 150 uh antitrust suits against corporations at a time when you need to be backing off businesses. Everything they did was wrong. And then, but you want to blame somebody that died in 1923? Well, that's a little stupid, but you can go ahead if you want to. Yeah. The economist Robert Murphy has a book called the politically incorrect guide to the great depression and great the book, new deal. Great great I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. If people want to read a little bit more of this. Um, I quote him in the book. It's a great book. Yeah. Bob's a good, good, good e economist. So I um, always like his work. All right. Um, okay. So you, you said the magic word there. I've, I've let it linger. I'm sure the listeners are curious. Scandal. I think it's scandals, <laughs> actually. All yeah. right. All right. There wasn't, you know, TMZ back around back then. So, um, but, but, but it is around today. So scandals get the, get the headlines. What, what scandals um, did Harding face? And you've talked about maybe his view of history where these scandals overplayed, underreported. Uh, what's your take on them? Well, yeah, that's what gives him the, the black park, if you will. Um, but it's, but it's overblown in a lot of ways. Almost every administration has some scandal. You're always going to have somebody that's going to do stuff naughty. 
my position is, is the difference is how does the president handle that kind of thing? I mean, when you, you can appoint your grandmother to office, you don't know how she's going to act when she gets into office. You just don't really know. You hope you've done a good job picking. And of course, I, I say in the book, Harding's responsible for who he picks to office. Well, in his administration, there were three scandals. There was one in the Veterans Bureau, one in the Justice Department, and then, of course, the one everybody probably has heard of, and that's Teapot Dome, because it's got probably the one of the coolest names for a scandal, that and Watergate. We know those two. Yeah. Um, three, and that's it. And, good, and most of it was just good old-fashioned graft and corruption. Now, the Veterans Bureau, remember the so many wounded warriors coming back from France? This is when we started the Veterans Bureau in the process of building veterans' hospitals and things for veterans. That's where a lot of that $3 billion Harding and Coolidge budget went was wounded veterans in the hospitals. And he put a man named Charles Forbes in charge. And Forbes was skimming off the top. He was overcharging the government for not only the construction of the hospitals, but medical supplies. And he skimmed about $2 million off of it. Uh, Harding violently confronted him in the White House. I talk about it in the book. A New York Times reporter uh, walked into that uh, uh, confrontation. Forbes was fired. Forbes ended up going to prison for what he had done. In the Justice Department, they were selling government secrets, or not secrets, but favors. I guess it was secret. They had a, they rented a, the Attorney General Harry Doherty and his sidekick, Jesse Smith, you know, rented a little secret house, a little greenhouse on K Street, they called it, where a lot of this was done. You could buy a pardon. You could buy a liquor license during Prohibition. You could buy a lot of things. And Jesse Smith was the ringleader. Harding confronted him and told him, um, we know what you're doing. Uh, you're going to be arrested for this. You need to get your affairs in order. Where Smith went home, burned all his personal effects, and uh, committed suicide. Um, that was the second suicide in the administration. Was the, the attorney for the Veterans Bureau also committed suicide over that particular scandal. And then, of course, Teapot Dome. And Teapot Dome did not break until after Harding was uh, dead. He found out about it. Harding was on a westward swing, a, a little westward tour called A Voyage of Understanding in the summer of 1923. Took him to the West Coast, all the way to Alaska. He was the first president to visit Alaska, um, coming down the West Coast, and he died in San Francisco. He heard about it on the way, what was happening. Um, Hoover was on that trip. They had a little meeting uh and, and he told Hoover about it. And Hoover said, you know, we, get, we need to get the word out there and find out what happened. And of course, what it was, was the Navy's um, oil reserves. The Navy used oil in those days. I mean, we still do, but no nuclear power. They had to have oil reserves for war. And those oil reserves were transferred to the Interior Department and the Interior Secretary, Albert Fall. Um, he's the one that insisted he get them transferred to his office under his jurisdiction and then of course he leased them the two private oil men to use so he got one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars in bribes it was just it was just graft and corruption and I, I feel strongly that parting would have fired fall and dealt with that but again it's a little unfair to criticize him for not doing anything when he didn't know about it and he died a few days later so um, again, there's scandal. He's responsible for who he picks to office, but at least he was doing something about it. Now, juxtapose that with Grant's administration and all the scandals there. Grant didn't do anything about any of those scandals. And in most cases, he accepted people's resignation with great regret. So I, you know, he certainly didn't do like Nixon. Harding Hardy didn't do like Nixon and cover the thing up uh, or anything like that. He, he was going to put those things out there. So, again, that's going to give him a black mark. We can't put him on Mount Rushmore, but at least he was doing something about it. 
Well, you, you mentioned three, but he does. Uh, th- there's one more that you talk about in the conclusion. I believe it's the uh, Nan Britain, um, yeah. and then the kid. So maybe unpack that a little yeah. bit because that's kind of a that's also. I think I think one of the things that I, that we we have you mentioned kind of thinking through these things, and it, and it's hard because um, you know I'm going to be probably a little bit more critical of a dude who has an extramarital affair than maybe some um, just because of my beliefs. Um, but but I have to weigh that in, and so here he is, and he ends up with a kid. We now believe. I don't know how confident we are that it's her, but go ahead and w- what's the story there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the three that I mentioned were the were the public corruption scandals. He had to have a personal scandal, not much so much in his White House years. A lot of that came out later because Nan Britton. Well, let's let's just, let's just back up. Harding had a two at least two extramarital affairs that we know of. Harding was married to a woman named Florence. Uh, she had been married previously, or had a common-law husband that she had a child with, a, a son. Um, he kind of he was an alcoholic, not her son, but her common-law husband, a guy named Pete DeWolf, and he ran off on her. And she was kind of destitute. She kind of, uh, when she met Harding, she was her her father had abandoned her basically, or you know just you know, washed his hands over. And she was giving piano lessons, trying you know living with friends, trying to make a living. When she met Harding, she and Harding didn't have any children. Um, they had more of a business partnership, and Florence Harding was uh, was an extraordinary gifted woman in terms of business. Harding owned a newspaper, the Marion Star, and she really made the Marion Star economically viable. I mean, it was actually very, very profitable, and she was the brains behind that, but they didn't have a very good, I'll just call it personal relationship. They didn't have any children. Harding told a friend of his at one time, he said, well, she makes life hell for me. So they didn't have the best relationship. So, yeah, he had a couple of extramarital affairs, one with a woman named Carrie Phillips and another one with Nan Britton, who was a young girl when he was a senator. And we now know that she had a daughter and we know from DNA that it was Harding's uh, daughter. Now, she didn't write a book and come out with all this until 1927. She wrote a book called The President's Daughter right. that no publisher wanted to touch. She had to get it self-published because it was full of all kinds of crazy stories. They didn't, nobody believed that the child was Harding. And they certainly didn't believe her stories that she used to sneak into the White House and they used to go into a closet off the Oval Office and do their thing. And then, of course, other historians have run with that and said, well, there was all kinds of women that came and had these wild parties in the White House and they were just partying it up. And that None of that's true. Now, Harding had no affairs while he was president. And I know people are out there probably thinking, oh, yeah, I don't believe that. Well, I have three primary sources that say otherwise. White House doorkeeper, uh, and one was Harding's uh, Secret Service agent. He wrote a memoir. All three of the doorkeeper, the, you know, the head usher, um, and the Secret Service agent all said no women came in that White House to see Warren Harding at any time. Now, the Secret Service agent, uh, his name was Edmund Starling. Now, he was a Wilson guy. He really admired Woodrow Wilson. He didn't like Harding. He didn't think Harding was a good president, but he defended him from some of these scandals. He even says in his memoir, he said, the worst thing I ever saw him do was mildly curse at a golf ball. And if anybody plays golf, you'll, you'll understand that. Yeah, my, he mildly is being good. <laughs> <laughs> and he played a little poker with his friends. He said, that's the way. He said, we had him under constant surveillance. He said, no women came in there. And the doorkeeper got, you know, kind of got hostile in his memoir and said, you know, I've never heard of Nan Britton. This woman's lying. Nobody came through these doors. And of course, you watch some of these movies. There's one movie called um, 13 Days made in 2000 about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And there's a joke in there about Harding when the cabinet's sneaking into the White House under the tunnels 
under the White House. And this guy says, I hear old Warren Harding used to get his girls in through here. Well, those tunnels didn't exist when Harding was president. Nobody was sneaking. and You had to go through a door to get there. And these people that worked in the White House said nobody came in there. There was none of that going on. So you see a lot of that's political attacks and things that people that don't like them. They say these kind of things and they just run with it. And today, historians repeat all of that as if it's true. And they don't even give any source attribution for it in their books. They don't even cite a source now because it's become common knowledge that Harding was a you know wild man in the White House. And that's just simply not true. Well, and then you also have the JFK factor, which is, you know, the, those, yeah. those stories are true. Yeah. yeah, those stories are have, true. Right. And then, gal every other day. Yeah. Right. You know yeah. Right. And then you have the Bill Clinton. And so it, it's no, it's the, I think the thing uh, with Harding would be is, or any president now, it would be hard to deny that that's possible. Whereas there's probably a, a point in American history where people would be like, oh, no, the president would never do something like that. And that that kind of veil has been torn, to, so to speak. And so people are probably more willing to believe that, which probably makes it tougher to decipher, you know, like you're saying, if they're not quoting, if they're not referencing anything in a footnote and you just read it like, oh, well, it must be true. And so um, it's probably a little right. easier to get that out there now. And, you know, and, and probably a lot of people know if you've dealt with history, I try to teach my students this about primary sources. You still have to take primary sources with a grain of salt. You got to realize mm -hmm. who it is. Um, that, and what are they saying and, and maybe why they're saying it, you know, just because somebody's got a memoir or a diary or something doesn't mean you can take it at face value. They may have hated the other person. And so you, you got to take it in other things into consideration too. There's people say, well, Harding was not a very good president. And he even said himself um, that he should have never been elected president. And there were a couple of things that Harding did say. Uh, you know, this is, and I should have never been here. I should have never been president. I don't deserve to be here. You know, you have to look at the fact is we don't know what mood he was in that day. What was going on in his life? What was happening? You know, at one point in his presidency, Florence got really sick. She had some, you know, some ailments and they didn't think she would live. She actually died the next year after Harding. She had some kidney problems. She was in bad shape. You know, when were these things said? Who did they say them to? What was their frame of mind? You don't know. They might have been having, we all have bad days and depressed days where you just don't, you know, I do that. I think, well, I'm a terrible writer. I never write another book again. I mean, we all have those days like that. So you, you, you don't, you have to put things into context if you can. Now, going back to that, what Harding said was, you know, I, I don't deserve to be in this office. I never deserve to be here. You know, nobody is qualified to be president except somebody that's been president. I mean, we, we, we throw out these qualifications, but my position is, is kind of what Lou Rockwell's position is. At least Harding had the guts to admit it. You know, hey, this is a tough office. You know, even Trump said that after he'd been in office a few months, he's doing an interview and somebody asked him and he said, he said, this job's tougher than I thought it was going to be. Everybody see, you don't know what it's like until you sit in that chair behind that desk and have all of that weight hit your shoulders. It's a tough job for anybody. And I don't even know why anybody ever wants the job, particularly not particularly these days. I'll take that VP job. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'll take That's that it. job. I don't I don't yeah. want the top job. I'll take the VP job and y'all never hear from me. I'll fly around and do the junkets and stuff, but just don't don't call me for work. So so the book is called The Jazz Age President. Is there anything that we missed that you want to mention for the listeners um, about the book before we get out of here? Yeah, you know, one of the things I enjoyed writing about is, again, it's not a full biography. I don't go into every little every little detail of Harding's life, but I do talk about where he came from and his upbringing a little bit and really a lot about who the man was, his personality, 
and he was really a kind, generous man. He was, he was even people that didn't like him, his political enemies, uh, it, uh, Agent Starling, uh, the Secret Service agent, didn't particularly like him, even said he was the kindest man I ever knew. There was a New York Times reporter that went to Marion, Ohio to try to, I guess, dig dirt on him because he hated Harding too, but he found all these stories that people told about how kind and generous Harding was. And I go into a lot of that in the book. It's really to show people who the real Warren Harding was, not who these historians say he was, but the real guy, the real guy that loved animals, the real guy that had, you know, was kind to his employees at the newspaper, the guy who, when his dog died, he wrote an obituary for the dog in the newspaper and things like that. If people abused animals in town, he called them out in the newspaper. And um, just a really kind-hearted man who, did, you know, tried to do the best he could as president in a really tough situation, and a really tough job. And I think he did a, a, a much better job than, than these historians say he did. Okay. So last time I asked you when you're on, um, when your next book will be out and you, you had one in the queue. So <laughs> it worked that kind of well. When will your next book be out or do you have one planned? Well, I'm working on a book. Uh, and again, this is, this is a project. I don't know how long it's going to take me or how big it's going to be, but I'm doing a, a book on the Vietnam War that I'm calling an unnecessary war. Um, uh, 2023 next year will be the 50th anniversary of us leaving, uh, signing the agreement January 1973 to leave Vietnam. So I've been to Vietnam five times. I know a lot about the country and a lot about the people and a lot about the war. So this is going to be more of a political history about the war and 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 what was going on, the pol political side of it. And uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun. It'll probably shake some people up as well. And, and the main thing is, I just don't understand why conservatives continue to, to defend Vietnam. I mean, it's an indefensible war, in my opinion. And uh, I'm going to look at it from that angle. So that'll be a lot of fun. Yes, it is. It is. It's a, it's a war that, um, and, and this is, I think, it's one of the things, you know, 100 years from now, it's, you know, I don't think it will be contested, the Vietnam War. Um, was it a necessary war? But but today you still have people who are alive that fought or their brother died or, or whatever. And so that's, it's one of those things where you're not trying to denigrate what happened to them. You're talking about the, the larger, like I've got, I've got a uh, book around here somewhere um, from Eugene Sledge talking about some of the battles they fought in the Pacific. And yeah. if, if you go read what those people went through and then you go read yeah. some of the military history, it's like they probably didn't have to go through all of those islands. And so you know, it's, you're not trying to denigrate. It's like, it's terrible what happened to them. And so, um, yeah, it makes it a nursing yeah, A lot of them a lot of them were draftees that just, just pulled off the street. And, and the problem was, it was just the lies surrounding Vietnam. I mean, it's just the way the government just lied to people from day one, never did tell the truth about it. I mean, you look at the Pentagon Papers, that just spelled it out right there. Everything that was going on, that's what the tragedy is. It's not that people, you know, we fought for our country. I mean, well, we fought based on just complete lies from, from the Gulf of, well, before the Gulf of Tonkin all the way through. I mean, we were never told the truth about what was going on ever. It was really a tragedy in my opinion and it's indefensible. Absolutely. Okay. Where can people find you between now and 2023? Well, I'm, I'm very assess accessible. Um, I got a website, ryanswalters.net. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, um, Google Ryan S. Walters. You'll find me. It, it pops right up. So, I'm very easy to find and people send me emails all the time asking me things. So I'm accessible. I don't hide from people. I, I like to get messages and notes from people and I try to answer all of them. Okay. Well, thank you again for doing this and to the publisher who reached out to get this set up. So thank those, um, I can't remember the, 
the lady's name. I think she left now. But anyways, uh, who set this up? So and we look forward to getting you on for your next book. That sounds good. Love to be back. Thank you.